series a couple of weeks ago on divine guidance. And we want to start this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll recount some things that we've said before just to get everybody up uh, to speed on where we are this morning. <clears throat> and then we'll go a little bit further. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to identify the makeup of man. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul identifies that man is three parts. Now, medical science, psychology really, has identified that there's something that goes beyond the natural man. They call it subconscious. They say that man has a subconscious mind. But if man had a subconscious mind, then the Bible would tell us about it. What they've done is they've identified the spirit, the real man on the inside, but they didn't know what to call it. So they call him a subconscious mind. But instead, the Bible identifies that man is the spirit being. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, at the creation account, during the creation account, the Bible says that God said, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Well, the Bible says clearly that God is a spirit. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus talking to the woman at the well of Samaria said, God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, if man is made in the image of God, the image and likeness of God, which literally means an exact duplicate or a copy of God himself, then man of necessity would have to be a spirit being. But he has a soul and he lives in a body. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 says, the spirit of man, not the soul of man, not the body of man. The spirit of man is the candle or the light of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. So it's telling us God will enlighten us He'll lead us. He'll guide us through our spirits, not through our minds and not through our bodies. But it's through the spirit of man that we can expect to be guided or led by the Lord. Romans 8.14 bears this out. Paul, speaking by the Holy Ghost, said, For as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. So it tells us that every child of God, man, woman, boy, or girl, every child of God has a right, I believe, a responsibility as Christians, as believers, to be led by the Holy Ghost, or in other words, to be divinely guided. But how's he going to do that? It's not enough just for us to know that God will lead us by our spirits. We need to know how to identify that so that we can be led effectively or so that we can cooperate with God's plan. Well, Romans eight sixteen tells us how this leading or guidance of the Lord will come. He said, the spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Now, folks, we take that phrase for granted, the phrase about being the children of God, but there's nothing more important for you to know than you are a child of God. Every problem that any unsaved person has in this world can be satisfied or solved by becoming a child of God, by accepting Jesus into his own heart. Every problem that a Christian experiences on this life, in this life, can be solved by knowing who they are as children of God. By identifying what the Bible tells us it means, being a child of God really means, and applying that knowledge, utilizing that knowledge to bring victory. You may remember in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of who we are in him, 
For it is the power of God unto salvation. That word salvation is an all-inclusive term. It means to rescue, to save, to deliver, to make safe, and to make sound, and to heal or make whole. So the Bible tells us that every problem can be solved by the application of the Word of God. Well, if we don't know who we are as children of God, that application is never going to be made. If we don't know what Jesus paid for, if we don't know what sacrifice he made for us and what the benefits of that sacrifice are to us, then even though it's the will of God, even though he's moved miraculously to deliver us and bring us into victory, that victory will never be realized. Now turn with me over to James chapter 1, verse 21. James is writing about some of these things. He uses a little different term. Now in the previous scriptures, he identifies that he's writing to brethren. He calls these believers, these that will read this letter, which includes you and me. He calls them brethren. He identifies specifically that we've been begotten or born of God by the word of truth. So here's what he says to believers. Spirit-filled, saved spirit-filled believers. He says, wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. That just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? And receive with meekness the engrafted word, notice this last phrase, which is able to save your souls. Which is able to save your souls. Now, folks, in, at first glance, we need to recognize that he's saying that spirit-filled, born-again spirit-filled believers need to have their souls saved. Which means it's not already done through accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's an important fact for us to realize that the new birth has absolutely no effect on the body or the mind of man without man's exercising itself, exercising the mind toward the Word. So he says, again, that wonderful phrase up front, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. He's talking about the distractions of the world. He's saying, lay aside the things of the world. Well, let's think about that for a minute. How do the things of the world affect us? How do we gain knowledge of these things of the world that we're supposed to lay away, supposed to set apart from ourselves? What's he talking about? He's talking about the things that our body experiences, the feelings and the emotions and the thoughts that circumstances and situations in life create in our mind. He's saying our body, our natural, our physical existence here on the earth has influence over us. And that influence is almost always going to lead us away from the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul said that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. He's saying the natural man. Now, he's talking about the unsaved man. But we would also have to recognize that it belongs to or applies to those who have not had their souls saved through receiving the word. It would also include the natural mind, the mind that's not renewed to the truth of the word. And he's saying the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. Well, being led by the Holy Ghost would be a thing of the Spirit of God, wouldn't it? He's saying the natural man talking about the unsaved, but the natural mind that's not renewed by the Spirit of God. The one that Paul admonished the Corinthians about, he said in one place, he uh, admonished them saying that they were living as mere men. Now again, he's talking to spirit-filled, saved spirit-filled believers. But he's saying they're living as mere men. What does that mean? 
That means they're living below as Christians. They're walking like the world walks. And they're living below the rights and privileges that belong to us because of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. So it's obviously not a slam dunk. It's not an immediate thing. It's not a sure thing that getting saved is going to bring somebody into victory. It'll bring them into eternal life. But that may or may not provide victory here on the earth depending on what they do, not what God does. Are you with me? So he's saying, lay aside the things of your body, the things of your flesh. Talking about James 1.21 again. He says, lay aside all those things that you feel. Lay aside all those things that you think that are contrary to the word of God. And instead, receive with meekness. Be teachable. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. Receive with meekness. He's talking about a conflict. He's talking about winning the conflict. Lay aside the things of the earth. Lay aside your feelings, your emotions. Lay aside your reasonings that contradict the truth of God's word. And instead, embrace the word of the Lord. Embrace the truth of God's word. Because that embracing of the truth of God's word, that truth that's revealed to our hearts through the word of God, is able to save our souls. He's able to save our souls. Now, James is talking about in capsule form the same thing that Paul talks about in the whole seventh chapter of Romans. You remember the conflict that Paul experienced? He talked about him, the difference between what his body wanted to do and what his spirit wanted to do. He concludes, excuse me, he concludes that there's two, wor- two works going on in him. He identifies that from his spirit, Romans 7, he said, from my spirit, I delight in the law of God. But then he goes on in the next verse and says, but I see another law working in my body. King James translates it members, but he's clearly talking about his flesh. He says, I've learned, I've come to realize that in me, that is in my flesh. He identifies that he's talking about the body. In his body lives no good thing. His spirit always wants to do right, but his body always wants to do wrong. It's not that he has two different wills. There's not a will of the spirit and a will of the flesh. But there are two different desires. From my heart, the real man on the inside, the man that's born again, I always want to do the right thing. But my body always wants to do the wrong thing. Well, what's going to make the difference? What's going to be the answer to his dilemma? Well, twofold. First thing he says is that Jesus Christ has delivered us. He's set us free. Not from the law of of sin and death, the experience of the law of sin and death in our bodies. He's saying you're always going to have a desire in your flesh to do the wrong thing. Jesus hasn't redeemed you from that. But he's redeemed you from the guilt of that. And then secondly, the second part of the answer is to renew our minds to the truth of the word. To renew our minds to the truth of the word. So when Paul's talking about his conflict, well, turn back with me to Romans chapter 7. Maybe we should look at some of these things rather than just quote them. I take for granted that you may know things that you don't know. Let me read some of these things that we just quoted before. Let's start reading in verse uh, verse 18. Paul said, for I know that in me, 
Now, he's qualifying what he means by in me. He's not talking about his spirit. And the fact that the real him is the spirit of man, he sees importance, sees how greatly important it is to qualify that and to to, um, describe what he's talking about. He says, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. He's saying my body's always wanting to do the wrong thing. My body's desire is always to do the wrong thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Here's the conflict. He's saying on the inside of me, the real me, the man that's been born again. Paul was the one that told us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new species of being. One translation says a new self. And all things are become new. Well, all things of the soul aren't become new. All things of the body aren't become new. Your body and your mind don't change because of the new birth. You have the capacity or the potential to change things in your thinking and to change things in your flesh limitedly. But he's saying, I know that the wrong idea, the wrong desire is always present in my body. He says, I wind up doing things that I don't want to do. Well, then clearly the will is not of the spirit. Because if the real you wanted to do the right thing, if the real you, the spirit of man that's been made new by the blood of Jesus, if that real you contained the will of man, then you'd always do right, no matter what your body wanted to do. But he's saying, my spirit has desires. My spirit desires to do right, but my body desires to do wrong. And he complains, he laments that so often I follow my body instead of my spirit. Why is that? Because his soul hadn't been renewed to the word. His soul hadn't been saved. Chapter 8, he tells us in verse 1. Well, maybe we ought to read a little bit further in Romans 7 first. Romans 7 verse 19, he said, for the good that I would, I do not. He's saying my spirit desires to do the right thing. For the good that I would or that I want to do, that's not what I wind up doing. But the evil which I would not, which from my spirit I don't want to do. That's what I wind up doing. Now, he's talking about living righteously versus living unrighteously. He's not talking about committing murder. He's not saying, well, I didn't really want to kill him, but I just had to. He's talking about living righteously versus living unrighteously. He's saying the righteous living that I want to do from my heart is not always what I find myself doing. But the unrighteous living, the unrighteous behavior in this life that I resent, that I don't want to do from the inside, That's what I wind up doing in many cases. Verse 20, now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that doeth it. Now the I he's talking about is the spirit. He's saying so whenever there's unrighteous behavior that takes place in my flesh that I yield to, he said that's not the real me. The real me always wants to do right. The spirit of man that's recreated, the spirit of man recreated by the blood of Jesus, the spirit of man that leads us, that is the candle of the Lord. He always wants to do right. And folks, this is why this is so important. If you come to the realization that you, the real you, always wants to do right because you've been recreated in the image of God, then the guilt of sin loses its power. The guilt of sin loses its grip on you. This is why Paul describes his struggles in such detail. Because unless you come to this truth, unless you come to accept 
what really happened in the new birth. You were made new in Christ Jesus. Paul describes that newness in Christ as being made complete. One translation says perfect. And that's really what it means. We've been made perfect on the inside. We have been made by the new birth. We have been made just as righteous, just as pure in spirit as Jesus ever was. Well, what's the difference? Why did Jesus not yield to unrighteousness where we sometimes do? The difference is the desire of our flesh. Jesus did not have a sin-tainted flesh. You do. And you'll continue to have it until Jesus comes back for the church. And we receive our redeemed bodies. Won't that be a glad day? Well, it will. But the thing that we think will change the most, we won't even notice. We'll be the same new creatures in Christ Jesus when Jesus comes back as we are now. That won't change. The only thing that will change is that then our redeemed bodies won't have a desire to sin. That's the only thing that will change. You remember there were a couple of occasions when Paul talked about being caught up into heaven. He says, when I was caught up into heaven and saw the Lord and heard things that I can't describe, he said, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I couldn't tell. Think about that. Standing before Jesus. Now, he must have been alone. Because if he was praying with somebody or somebody else was there, they would have been able to easily tell whether he went in the body or out of the body. If he disappeared, then he would have gone in the body. Chances are he did not. Chances are he went outside of his body. His spirit visited heaven or experienced the visions apart from his body. But the fact that when he was standing before Jesus, hearing unutterable words indescribable words he couldn't tell whether he was in the body or out folks that's how much effect the, the body should have on your spirit brother Hagin used to say, this, say it this way he said I'll go sometimes five or six years long without even knowing I've got a body now he's talking about being tempted and yielding to temptation and that type of thing but we can develop ourselves to the place where our body has very little influence over us at that point that's what James is calling the soul being saved. So here we are. Verse 20, he said, Now if I do that which I, my spirit, would not, it's no more I, my spirit, the real me, that does it, but sin, or the desire for sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Folks, this is the Apostle Paul saying that evil is always present with me. Now, how is it present with him? Is it in his spirit? Absolutely not. How is evil present with him? Through the influence or the desire of the flesh. Now, we think that desire of the flesh disqualifies us from some kind of special place with God. But it doesn't. This was Paul's experience before he was ever caught up into heaven. This was Paul's experience with every miracle or prior to every miracle and sign and wonder that he produced or performed here on the earth by the will of God. It didn't disqualify him from any of those things. It's not a disqualifying factor for you or me or him or anyone else. Why is that? Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He's identifying that the inward man is the real him. He said the real me always wants to do right. 
And the real you always wants to do right too. See, he's not saying the real man on the inside, the real him, always wants to do right because he's developed himself in some special way. He's saying the real him wants to do right always because that's the part that's been born again. That's the part that's been recreated in the image and likeness of God. And that'll never change. So he's saying, I'm not guilty. The real me on the inside always wants to do the right thing. So I'm not guilty no matter what my flesh influences me to do. Now, he's not abdicating responsibility over his flesh. And a lot of people in hearing these things, they'll come up with the idea that, well, it doesn't matter what you do with your flesh. Well, sure it does. But you're not always going to win the battle over your flesh. Hopefully, the more and more we grow in knowledge of God, the more and more we get our souls saved and renew our minds to the truth, our flesh will have a diminishing influence on us. But you're never going to escape it. Paul said, I keep my body under. Well, that's after he found out that the real him on the inside always wants to do right. He still exercised himself to control his flesh. Notice the way he said that. I keep my body under. The real me, the man on the inside, keeps my body. He calls his body a possession, not him. I keep my body under. So Paul says... For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members or in my flesh, warring against the law of my mind. Notice that. Now, why is he talking about the mind? He's just talked about the spirit. He's just identified that the real him, the inward man, the spirit of man, always wanted to do right. Now, where's the mind thing coming from? Because, folks, your mind is a part of your soul. Your soul is made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. And he's saying that the body, the desires, the sinful desires of the body try to exercise influence to follow its desires. So how does the body or the emotions try to dictate or determine the will of man? The battleground is in the mind. See, the mind is the one that sides with either the spirit to walk and live righteously or the body to walk and live unrighteously. And so your emotions war against your mind, your feelings, your thoughts, influenced by the circumstances and the situations of life. Those things try to influence your mind to side in with it, it meaning your body, to live unrighteously rather than to side in with your mind, well, I'm sorry, your spirit, to live righteously. Your mind is what tips the scales one way or the other. So when Paul talks about two desires, he's not saying I've got two wills, the will of my flesh and the will of my spirit. He's saying I've got two desires. The inward man's desire is to live righteously and do the right thing always. But the outward man, the body, its desires are always to do the wrong thing. Which way am I going to go? And folks, that's what temptation is all about. It's a decision. It's a determination. Which way am I going to go? Well, Paul, after he saved, went unrighteously a lot of times. His mind sided in with his body. That's why he resented it. That's why he said, I don't understand why I'm doing the things that I, the man on the inside, doesn't want to do. It's the conflict that we all have. But I see another law in my members or my body warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Bringing me 
the spirit into captivity. He's saying my spirit winds up being the odd man out. My mind and my flesh go toward evil, which is always present in my body. It's not present in my spirit. It's not even present in my mind. But it influences the mind, the will of man, to be exercised or to follow evil. He laments this condition. Verse 24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He's saying my body, my flesh, still has the the taint or the experience of spiritual death. The man on the inside, the real me, is born again. And it always wants to do right. It always desires to walk in accordance with God's will and God's purpose. But who's going to deliver me from this? Who's going to make the difference or do something for me? It's beyond my power to conquer on my own. Who's going to bring me into a place of deliverance from this death that's in my flesh? Well, he answers the question. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He's saying it all comes down to which way my mind goes. Whichever way my mind goes determines my will. It's the determining factor whether or not I live righteously or live unrighteously, even though I've been made in the, remade, reborn, recreated in the image of God. So that brings us to chapter 8. Now, you know as well as I do that Paul didn't, read, didn't write this thing in chapter and verse. He's writing a letter. So on the heels of declaring that Jesus is the one that delivers us from this conflict, this war between our spirits and our flesh, he says in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now you may notice that I didn't read the entirety of the verse. There's a reason for that. The reason for that is in the original manuscripts, the original text, the last phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, is not in verse 1. Don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. It's very easy to research. Now, the translators did the best they could to translate the Greek language into the English language for us. But every translation is going to depend on two things and only on two things. The worth or the value or the accuracy of a translation is based on two factors. The first one is the translator's knowledge or understanding of the language. But then the second part, equally as important as the knowledge of the language, the second thing that's going to make a translation good or bad, accurate or in error, is their understanding of God. Now, apparently, they didn't understand what Paul was trying to communicate. So they pulled a phrase from verse 4, what we know of as verse 4, and thought to themselves, I guess, that this has to be part of what Paul is saying in verse 1. And maybe Paul just put it in verse 4 as a normal course of, of speech. But they felt, they had to, they felt that it was important for us to understand that it's a part of verse 1 so that we would have the same understanding as they had. The problem was their understanding was wrong. Now what they should have done is not tried to doctor Paul's letter. They should have spoken it or translated it in exactly the way that Paul wrote it. And here's the way Paul wrote it. 
Since Jesus is the one that delivers us from the body of this death, the desire of the flesh, and the guilt and the condemnation of our minds yielding to that desire. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For, because, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He didn't say it removed the law of sin and death from his flesh. He said the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set him free. That means even when his soul, his mind, his will sides in with the body, there's no condemnation for that. It doesn't change the condition of the new birth. It doesn't reverse us from being born again to an unregenerate nature. He says there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is so much greater than any law of sin and death, any desire of our flesh. And that's what being made a new creature or a new creation in Christ Jesus means. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. He's talking about the law of Moses there. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Notice that phrase. He condemns sin in the flesh. What does that mean? It means for the first time in eternity, God was able to deal with sin apart from or separate from mankind. See, when Jesus passed judgment through his sacrifice, through his death, burial, and resurrection, when he passed judgment on death, he did it apart from mankind. Prior to that, there was no separation, no possibility for separation from man and the deeds of the sins that he's committed. But when Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, he separated the real you from your behavior, from your unrighteous or sinful behavior. He separated you and condemned the sin in the flesh without condemning you and me. And folks, that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus passed judgment on sin and not on you so you can freely come to your heavenly father and be born again enter into his family that's what the good news is all about it's about the separation of man from his sin sin has been condemned spiritual death has been condemned sickness has been condemned poverty has been condemned but not man are you with me So Jesus for sin or for, as a substitute for sin condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Now here again it seems like he's talking about behavior doesn't it? It sounds like he's saying unrighteousness uh, or righteousness, righteous life, righteous behavior will only be available to those of us who walk after the spirit and not after the flesh. But if you read another couple of verses down, you'll find out that if you've been born again, that's what walking after the spirit means. He's not just talking about day-to-day -day activity. Again, we have responsibility for our bodies and our lifestyle. But that's not the point he's trying to make. The point that he's making is that because we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives, because we've been reborn, born again in the image of God, our spirit's made new. He's saying that's what walking in the Spirit is all about. We chose the truth of the Word of God. We made an active determination of our will to enter into the family of God because of what the Word tells us Jesus did for us. Our, spirit, our spirits influenced our minds. 
to come into the family of God. And our flesh couldn't do anything to stop it. The sinful nature of our flesh couldn't stop that, couldn't change that, couldn't alter that in any form whatsoever. Verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind or attend to the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Here's what I want you to see. Here's the reason I brought you to Romans chapter 8. Notice verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What is Paul saying makes the difference? Since our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions are being pulled one way by the real us, the spirit, and being pulled another way by the desires of the flesh. He's saying what makes the difference? Not in our salvation. Our salvation was attained when we made Jesus the Lord of our lives. Our salvation was attained when our minds went with our spirits to accept Jesus and we came into the family of God. What's going to make the difference in our lives though? What's going to make the difference in whether our lives are victorious or defeated? What's going to make the difference in whether or not we lived up to who we are in Christ Jesus or we walk around this earth as mere men? Not taking advantage of and not affected by the truth of the word of God and what the Bible tells us Jesus did for us. What's going to make the difference? Whether you're carnally minded or spiritually minded. Paul expands further in Romans chapter 12. Look with me over to Romans 12 verse 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore brethren... Now remember he's talking to, he's talking to the people that he explained his conflict, his struggle between his spirit and the desires of the inward man versus the desires of the flesh. The discovery that he made about being redeemed from condemnation when you fall into sin or take un, make unrighteous actions in your life. He's the one that told us all these things. Now he's going to give us his key to responsibility over our bodies and our minds. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That last phrase, reasonable service, is translated most often in other translations as spiritual worship. Again, you remember in John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus tells the woman at the well of Samaria, God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We charismatics think worshiping him in spirit means singing in tongues. Well, thank God we have that opportunity to speak and to sing in tongues as any spirit-filled believer does and as any believer, any child of God can have or can receive. But the spiritual worship that Jesus is talking about is the Christian, the believer, doing something with his body. Notice God doesn't do it for you. You present your bodies. It's your spiritual worship, not his. It's your responsibility, not his. So he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, knowing full well there's no condemnation to those that live unrighteously here on the earth because Jesus condemns sin in the flesh. But he said, I encourage you, I beseech you, I implore you, by the mercies of God, because God's been so good to us, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's not saying, or else. He's not saying do something about your bodies or else. He's not saying walk righteously in this life 
or else God will turn his back on you. He's not saying any of the things that the devil tries to tell us. He's saying there's no condemnation. But because God's been so good to us, let's choose to live righteously. That's what he's saying. Because God's been so good to us, because God doesn't hold our sin against us, because God's not looking for unrighteous action on our part to be a justification for sending tragedy on us or doing some terrible thing to us. But because God was merciful, let's present our bodies to him as a form of spiritual worship. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He's saying the transformation process, the saving of the soul, as James 1.21 says. The transformation process comes by renewing your mind to the truth, by learning to think in line with what God's Word says and not according to the superfluity of naughtiness and the filthiness, the information that our bodies receive from this world and the situations surrounding us. He's saying don't yield to those things, but instead renew your mind to the truth. Now, folks, since the Bible tells us unequivocally Again, maybe you need to turn to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being. Prior to Jesus, there was no man that was born from spiritual death. But now that's us. Because Jesus died spiritually and the life of God raised him up. He was the first begotten or firstborn among many brethren. Well, who are the brethren of Jesus? The church. He was the firstborn among many brethren. Here's what the new birth does for us. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being. Old things are passed away. Old things are passed away. Please notice that. What old things are passed away? Everything of the Spirit. Not the things of the flesh. Not the things of the body. But the things of the Spirit. Now, sometimes the church has gotten into these deep philosophical arguments and questions arise about can a spirit have, can a Christian rather, have an evil spirit? Well, if all things become new, he can't have one in his spirit. God's not a roommate of the devil. He lives in you. And by the new birth, everything changed spiritually. Now, the things of our mind didn't change. We still have the same interest after we get saved as we had before we get saved. The things of the body didn't change. Our eye color didn't change or bald-headed people didn't grow hair at the new birth. So none of those things changed. So the new birth then affected our spirits, the real man, the real man on the inside, and not our mind and not our bodies. And God gives us the responsibility, that is if Paul's speaking by the Holy Ghost in Romans chapter 12. God left that responsibility to do something with our bodies and our minds, it's up to us. He left that for us to do. He left that for us to do. Well, if all things became new, if all things of the Spirit became new, then it would be impossible for an evil spirit to have any access or even touch the real you, the spirit of man. It's impossible. 
Well, then the question that has to be asked or is further asked, what about in the soul? Can a Christian have an evil spirit in his soul? And the answer to that is yes, he could. But why would he want to? See, the soul is where the will is. The soul is the one that determines which way the scales are going to be tipped toward spiritual things or toward earthly things. Remember, the Bible tells us to make no place, give no room to the devil. How do we do that? Through the exercise of our will. Remember, the Bible says that the Word of God is the power of God into every aspect of salvation. It's the power of God to be free in any and every area. So if a Christian did have an evil spirit in his soul, he could change that just by a matter of exercising his will toward the Word of God. The important thing is this. The Christian cannot be bound by the devil against his will. It's impossible. That is if the Bible is true. It's impossible for the devil to gain a foothold in your soul or in your mind apart from your will. Now the reality is the devil does build up strongholds. You remember Paul wrote to the church and he told us to pull down strongholds through right thinking, not through attacking in prayer. See, folks, prayer very often, or very seldom, I should say, prayer very seldom brings us new information. There are occasions where God will reveal something to our spirits in times of prayer that our, our souls or our minds don't know. I've had God quote scriptures to me that I didn't know were in the Bible. And I had to go search for them and find them. And when I found them, they turned out to be a great blessing to me. So the Holy Spirit who resides on the inside of my spirit and yours sometimes brings information to your mind, but it's very seldom. So where does the information of God's word come from that leads us into victory? It comes from or through us choosing to focus our minds on spiritual things. It comes from us choosing to put the word of God into our souls and not just in our spirits. Everything that we have in this life comes from, ultimately comes from the spirit. Mankind is the only species which has the ability to change their nature. Our personalities are what we determine them to be from the inside and not just from the outside. Now, a lot of people don't do the work that they need to to change, but it's available to us. I've got uh, two dogs, and one of our dogs is a pit bull mix. I know a lot of people are freaked out by pit bulls and that type of thing. But pit bulls were bred to be nanny dogs to take care of kids. One of the reasons that uh, pit bulls are used in fighting and illegal activity like that is because pit bulls are one of the most man-pleasing breeds that there is. 
They'll do anything, including fight, to please their owners. Well, when my grandkids come over to the house, this one dog, Jack, his behavior changes completely. He becomes a herder. He'll herd them away from the edge of the pool. If anybody else is at the house and they make a wrong move toward one of these kids, he lets them know in a hurry that is not allowed here. <laughs> well, it's part of what makes up my dog's personality. But it's not a result. It's not, it, comes from a, it does not come from a spiritual foundation. It comes from the elements of the breeding. Fleshly, earthly, natural things that are a part of that breed of dog. So we see animals that have personalities, but the source of their personality, the foundation of their personality traits, is not a spirit, but yours is. Now, there are different personality types and categories and so forth, but we're not even bound by those things. We can see certain things about our personality type that we may not want to participate in or want that to be a part of our lives. So we have the freedom and the ability to make those changes. Not everybody does. Not everybody thinks through these things enough to identify what changes they need to make. But these are some of the changes that walking in love will make in our lives. Now think about how that works. The Bible says in Romans 5, 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts at the point of salvation. The God kind of love is placed within us. Part of the new birth, part of being born again into the family of God means to take on the nature of God. John said it this way, we know we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. In other words, love is supposed to be the determining factor, the proving factor or characteristic that we can and should know that we're born again. Well, what will walking in love do? Walking in love will overcome some of the desires of your flesh to get back at people that do you wrong. To not forgive, fail to forgive, refuse to forgive. People that take action against you unjustly. Walking in love will make you do good things towards somebody else, even though the desire of your flesh may be to do evil or respond in kind to whatever they did to you. But those are choices we make, right? Forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. And sometimes we have to choose to forgive people that have done us wrong over and over and over again. You remember Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive in a day? He thought he was saying a lot when he suggested seven times. Jesus said, I say unto you seven times seventy. Now that's 490 times in a day. He's saying we have the capacity to forgive 490 times a day. I don't think he's saying that 491st time, though, you're on your own. I think he's using a term that shows us that we have unlimited capacity for walking in the love of God to forgive. Now, as I've said before, if somebody's sinning against you purposely 490 times a day, you may be in an unhealthy relationship. But it doesn't change the fact that you have the capacity, the ability to walk in love. Now, if we walk in love, what does that mean? 
If we choose to forgive somebody that's sinned against us or done us wrong, what does that mean? Well, our flesh, we know what our flesh wants to do. Our flesh wants to retaliate. Our flesh wants to respond to them in kind. Most, in most cases, most situations, with greater force than they used against us. If they did us a little wrong, we want to get back at them a lot wrong so that they learn their lesson. But our heart always wants to do the right thing. Our spirit, the real us, always wants to do the right thing. So now we're in a dilemma. Do we forgive? Do we not forgive? What makes the decision? What makes the determining factor? Our soul. Based on the knowledge of God's word, based on the knowledge that we've received from God's word, that we can forgive anyone, anytime, if we will. Our mind, our soul, sides in either with our spirits to forgive or our flesh to retaliate. We understand that very simply, don't we? We've all had situations often enough in our lives to realize that we're the one that decides. We're not forced to walk in unforgiveness. It's a matter of our choice. This is the conflict that Paul is talking about. This is the conflict that Paul is talking about in himself. It's what he referred to as the difference between his spirit wanting to do the right thing and his flesh or his body wanting to do the wrong thing. Our soul, our mind always makes the choice. And the greater knowledge we have of God's word of who we are in Christ Jesus, the greater knowledge we have of the victory that Jesus won for us, the greater knowledge that we have about what God's will and plan and purpose for us is, then the easier it is for us to make the decision, to make the determination from our soul, our will, to act on what the Bible says instead of how we feel. Can you see that? That's why the renewing of the mind is so important. Now, what does a renewed mind look like? A renewed mind... Many of us think, and I think the devil helps to foster this wrong idea. But the renewed mind isn't somebody or the mind that knows everything about the word. It's not the mind that's, that's uh, um, memorized all the scripture that will ever pertain to them. The renewed mind is the one that asks, what does the word say? The renewed mind or the saved soul is the individual that looks at the situation and puts God's word first. It may not know what the word has to say about the certain circumstances that they're in, but it knows the word's the answer. It knows the good news of Jesus, the revelation of what Jesus purchased for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. The renewed mind knows that the answer is in that truth. Revealed to us as by the word of God. So the renewed mind always asks the question, what does the word say? Why is that? Because that's what being spiritually minded is. To be spiritually minded means to check spiritual truths and a cho making a choice to live according to those spiritual truths no matter what the circumstances of life in influence our bodies to want to do. To be carnally minded is death. It'll lead you into the 
ravages of sin, even as a born-again, spirit-filled believer. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so by thinking in line with God's word, in every situation, in every instance, we can pull down those strongholds. We can pull down those places that the devil created in our minds and our thoughts and overcome his thoughts with the truth of the word. And that's where the transformation process takes place. What does spiritual growth really mean? You can't get any bigger in your spirit than you are now. You can't get any more knowledgeable in your spirit than you are now. Spiritual growth, by and large, is the process of the renewing of the mind. It's bringing our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions in line with what the Bible says Jesus has done for us. It's not just the gaining and the gathering of knowledge. It's to gather knowledge for the purpose of acting on it. It's the gathering of knowledge from the Word of God, the truth of the Word of God, so that we can act from our spirits, which will always lead us into victory. Every victory is in the Word of God. There is no situation that you'll ever encounter on this earth that the Word of God doesn't have the answer for. But where are we going to find that answer? In the truth of the Word. And the more and more we commit that truth of the Word to be a part of us, not just our memory, but to be a part of us, the more and more victory we'll walk in. That measure of victory will grow greater and greater and greater because we've chosen to quit living like mere men. I love that phrase. Paul admonished the Corinthians, saying, you guys are passing up on the spiritual truth and the spiritual power that's available to us through the Word of God. You're choosing to live as mere men. You're choosing to live as the unsaved, body ruled and influenced only by your flesh. Well, if he was admonishing them because they were living as mere men, then the will of God must be for us to live as God-men and not mere men. Infused and empowered by the Holy Ghost. God-men. That's the new species of being that we've been made. We've been made God-men. And I'm saying men, meaning women, too. That's the way God wants us to live. So there's no power that the devil can ever exercise against you that you cannot overcome through the exercise of your will to accept the truth of God's word and live by it. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. See, folks, the devil knows how defeated he is. He's just hoping you and I never find out. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Thank you, Lord, that we have the ability to bring every thought captive, to bring every thought into captivity to the truth of your word. And in so doing, we pull down those strongholds, those fortresses that the enemy has created in our minds. Thank you, Father, that we have the capacity. It's up to us. It's our responsibility. But we have the capacity to think only in line with your word and to take actions in this life only influenced by the power of the word. We thank you, Father, 
that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. Thank you, Lord, that we can count on and rely on and stand on your word in every circumstance. Thank you because we're complete in Christ Jesus, made perfect in spirit, and that there is now no condemnation even when we stumble through our flesh. Thank you, Lord, that there's never any guilt or shame to be had on our part because we're in Christ Jesus. And we can run to you in every situation. We can rely on your mercy. And we can grow in you. We love you, Father. We thank you for the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, folks, have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can.